Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast. This is your host, Anastasia Yuglova. This episode is for Wednesday, April 18th. The 2002 Farm Bill is set to expire in September, and agricultural lobbyists are already hard at work to make this year's Farm Bill even more formidable. But as outlined in the new Cato PA, Freeing the Farm, a Farm Bill for All Americans, the Farm Bill is a failure in need of major reform. You can find the PA on our website or in your podcast's RSS feed. Today's guest is Cato trade policy analyst Stally James, one of the PA's authors. How damaging are farm subsidies to the United States? Well, the actual dollar figure will vary from year to year because of world prices, domestic prices, you know, production in the United States, weather, etc. All those things can impact on the amount of money that the government will give to farmers through disaster payments or the more traditional commodity subsidies. But in 2005, financial year 2005, it was about $21 billion. And I should say that uh, more than half of that went to large farming interests. It's not necessarily the small struggling family farm that people often think of that are getting the lion's share of this money. But in addition to the actual fiscal outlays, the line item in the budget, there's also cost to consumers for products like sugar and dairy that mainly supported through high, artificially high domestic prices that are caused by trade barriers at the border to stop competitive imports coming in and other policies as well. So it's important to think about the different ways the government directs money. And sugar and dairy, you can add billions more to that $21 billion figure that I mentioned before. As I said, this is kind of a regressive tax in a way because consumers that pay more for those sorts of goods tend to be poorer because poor people spend a higher proportion of their income on food and it's flowing to farmers that on average have a higher income. So it's actually a regressive tax in that perspective. And also a lot of these subsidies benefit landowners because the subsidy gets what we call capitalised into the land value. People expect subsidies in the future, so land values go up. That doesn't always benefit farmers. They may not own the actual land, they just farm it. So it's important also to remember that landowners are not always the people actually farming. The opportunity cost of all these policies we looked at in our study was using what's called the OECD Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a group of kind of richer countries and they look at something called the producer subsidy equivalent, which is a measure of the transfers from consumers and taxpayers to farmers. In other words, it measures how much government intervention benefits farmers. And we looked at that for 1986 to 2005, so over about 20 years. And then we discounted it using the treasury bond rate and came to a figure of $1.7 trillion. Now, what that means is that had consumers and taxpayers not spent money on farm programs and instead invested that money at the prevailing treasury bond rate at the time, they would be $1.7 trillion better off today. Is there a foreign policy dimension here? Definitely. And that's another cost, if you like, to the United States, even though it's not directly included in things like government outlays and consumer spending. The hypocrisy that is seen by other developing countries towards the United States, in other words, they say, here's the United States, it preaches free markets and liberty and opportunity for all, and yet their policies are directly adversely affecting other developing countries' interests because by artificially 
stimulating production in the United States, which then gets sold on the world markets, it depresses world market prices for a lot of these goods. So that adversely affects developing country interests. And really, the United States, the biggest contribution it can make to the Doha round is to reform its agricultural policies. And unless and until we get significant reform in what's called domestic support to agriculture, so that's the way the government supports agricultural interests in the United States, that deal is not going to come to fruition. It's true that other countries have to do their bit as well, but the United States's role is to reform farm subsidies. And as long as these policies go unreformed, it not only harms the domestic economy, but it harms the world economy and it harms other interests in the United States that would benefit from a freeing up of world trade. But agricultural interests in the United States being as entrenched as they are, how does one go about dismantling the farm program? Uh, with great difficulty, obviously, or it would have been done before now, and, and we would be $1.7 trillion richer in the last 20 years. It's very true that it's a very powerful lobby. But one of the ways this year that we've seen a few changes is coalitions that are forming to confront these interests and to point out the damages that are done to the economy the ones that I just spoke about in the previous question. Another one is environmental groups have been quite forward this year about asserting the damage that these policies can do to the environment. For example, they encourage production, including on marginal lands that perhaps would be better off left fallow or, or unploughed. So those types of groups, anti-poverty groups, Oxfam International is one group that have really been trying this year to point out the damage that these policies do and to provide, if you like, a counterweight, a lobbying or an advocacy counterweight to the farm policy lobby. The other thing that can be done and I think has been done very successfully this year, although how successfully in terms of its actual effect it remains to be seen, is to create demand for reform. So in other words, to get a lot of press out there, the Washington Post series on harvesting cash is an excellent example of the types of media outrage about some of these policies and their effects. And I think if people are aware of exactly what farm subsidies do and what they do not do, I think that will create that kind of outrage factor. And the other thing that really needs to be done if we're going to get serious reform, I think, is to provide alternatives. It's very difficult to fight something with nothing. And I think it's important for people to put reform ideas out there. What policy solutions does your paper address? Well, we've advocated a one-time limited buyout of the subsidies, rural development outlays, disaster payments, and also the price supports and the trade barriers for, say, dairy and sugar that I've talked about. It's really a political solution. As you know, Cato stands for free markets and limited government, and the Farm Bill really offends on every level. And really, our ideal solution would be to just end these programs overnight. But as I said, you have to provide some sort of solution. And unfortunately, pragmatically, that means providing some sort of incentive for farmers to sign on because they are just so politically powerful. So what we're advocating is buying out the predicted benefits that farmers would get over the next seven years and giving it to them up front with no strings attached and saying, here's your money, sign on the dotted line, basically. Some reforms have been tried before. What we're advocating this time, which we hope will make a difference, is to repeal the permanent laws that are on the books that allow agricultural programs to continue. So in other words, enabling legislation that means every five years farmers kind of come back for more. And I think if we repeal that, it would make them very difficult because they'd basically every five years, if they wanted a farm bill, would have to literally rebuild the whole program from scratch. And that's a huge barrier to overcome. 
We would also advocate translating the changes into our schedule of commitments in the WTO. That means that the WTO would be kind of written into our contract, if you like, at the WTO, that our subsidies are zero and we have zero trade barriers. What that means, it's kind of a useful backstep against reneging on reform because if you then violated your commitments, other members at the WTO would be able to hold you to task through the dispute settlement system. It's kind of like a gambler giving a casino a picture of themselves and saying, if I try to get back in again, stop me. Because it's basically the United States saying, we want to reform. We know that the political pressure is going to be there from certain groups, in this case, the farm lobby, to renege on that reform. But if it's written in our schedule of commitments, there'd be serious consequences for us for reneging. And so that would be a useful backstep as well. Thank you so much for your commentary, Sally. If you're interested, please join us on April 26 for the Lunchtime Forum on Freeing the Farm, a farm bill for all Americans. And also don't miss the new Cato book available from our online bookstore, David's Hammer. In the surprising and well-thought-out book, constitutional litigator Clint Bolick makes the case for an activist judiciary.